Hello and welcome to ShakesPod, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's podcast. I'm Angie Higgins, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's Artistic Director. In the spirit of Silicon Valley Shakespeare's motto, to innovate, illuminate, and inspire, our podcast brings you a mix of behind-the-scenes interviews, performances, and exploration into the weird and wonderful world of Shakespeare. On today's episode, resident dramaturge Dal Picado explores the complex history of race in Shakespeare performance, including the lens in which we view his work, and the life of Ira Aldridge, the first Black Shakespearean actor. Take it away, Dahl. My name is Dal Picado, and this is Bard Talk. When we as modern day actors, scholars, and students ask questions about Shakespeare's plays, we tend to do so while viewing them through our modern day societal and literary lenses. So questions like, was Shakespeare sexist? Or was Shakespeare homophobic? Or was Shakespeare racist? Tend to be answered or argued using modern day criteria. However, as Shakespeare lived and died over 400 years ago and societal norms were radically different then, these questions are tricky to answer. For example, it's difficult to define Shakespeare as a progressive LGBTQ friendly playwright when there was no such thing as an LGBTQ identity in Shakespeare's time. His plays certainly have moments of same sex attraction and the sonnets themselves seem to indicate quite clearly that Shakespeare himself had romantic feelings for both men and women. But as to whether Shakespeare would have identified himself as a progressive bisexual, that we will probably never know. That identity just didn't exist for Shakespeare. The same problem exists when you ask if Shakespeare was racist. Shakespeare's society did not define race in the same way that we do now. They did not connect skin color to evolutionary heritage or genetics. Those concepts didn't appear until the 19th century with the rise of biological science. Now, prejudice against darker skin color was widely prevalent in early modern England, but it wasn't connected to the same idea of race as interpreted by modern society. It had nothing to do with your genes. Instead, the color prejudice that existed in Elizabethan England was based on one, medieval climate theory, which linked darker skin to sun exposure and hotter climates with hotter temperaments, and two, the Old Testament, which tells the story of Noah's son, Ham, who God cursed to be black and loathsome. So it followed that your nature inside would be reflected on your skin outside. So darker skin, more sinful, while lighter skin, less sinful. These ideas are reflected in many places in Shakespeare's plays. For example, in Love's Labor's Lost, Varun is in anguish over the fact that he's in love with Rosalind and declares, and among three, to love the worst of all, a whitely wanton with a velvet brow with two pitch balls stuck in her face for eyes. Pitch naturally being black in color and velvet being a dark, heavy fabric gives us a clue as to Rosalind's complexion as does Barun's insistence that he loves the worst of all. Her worser nature is reflected in her darker complexion. Now, although we can find these examples throughout Shakespeare's plays, we never hear directly from the playwright himself on race or any other topic for that matter. Issues like race or gender or sexuality were never communicated directly by Shakespeare to his audiences. 
the issues were addressed by his characters, who of course had their own voices and lives and motivations and represent different viewpoints than Shakespeare himself had. So when faced with those difficult questions, was Shakespeare sexist? Was Shakespeare homophobic? Was Shakespeare racist? There may never be a clear answer, but we can observe how the powers that be in different time periods have taken Shakespeare and conformed him to their own agendas. For example, during World War II, the Nazi powers would have loved to erase Shakespeare's works completely as his Englishness made him the enemy and his works would have been illegal to perform or even read in Germany. However, Shakespeare had been a staple of German education for generations and he was too well known and revered across Europe to simply disappear. Instead, the Nazis conformed him to their own agendas by declaring his birthright to be German by blood rather than English. Hamlet as a play was redefined. No longer was the play about a troubled Danish prince dealing with a crisis of conscience, but rather it was about Germany itself with Hamlet taking the role of a proto-German warrior. According to the Nazi newspaper Der Sturmer, the story was the tragedy of the German nation with the crime that deprived Hamlet of his inheritance being the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, but left Germany beaten and weak with no arms, no new lands and billions of dollars in reparations to pay. The tragedy was the fall of Germany and the Nazi party was its new hope. A somber example to be sure, but the plain fact of the matter is that Shakespeare has historically been viewed through a lens focused by the powers that be. And those powers have historically been white and male. Even as Samuel Johnson praised the humanity of Shakespeare's writing saying, Shakespeare has no heroes. His scenes are occupied only by men who act and speak as the reader thinks he should himself have spoken or acted on the same occasion. He wasn't referring to humanity in general. He was referring to white men who were widely believed to be the only ones intelligent enough and deserving enough to own Shakespeare. Characters that Shakespeare created that were written as non-white, Othello or Aaron the Moor were not played by black actors. That would have been unthinkable. They were played by white actors in blackface because Shakespeare belonged to them. There was no other option. No other option was even considered until the early 1800s when some amazing artists started challenging the powers that be in their white lens agenda and changed Shakespearean theater forever. Today, we are going to look at the life of Ira Aldridge, the first black Shakespearean actor on record to play the London stage. We wanna specify here that he was the first recorded on the London stage because there are likely many other black actors that played Shakespeare in London and other places that we've never heard of, but whose contributions and bravery were inspirations for young actors like Aldridge. We know for sure that his mentor, James Hewitt, played Othello at their small theater in New York City before the theater was destroyed. But who knows how many more made the step to play Shakespeare characters that had been claimed by a white society that still considered those actors to be property. Their unrecorded contributions cannot be discounted. We would like to remember them here.
Ira Aldridge was born in New York City in 1807 to Daniel and Lorana Aldridge, who were free people living in a New York that had not completely abolished slavery yet. His father, a lay preacher, hoped that Ira would follow in his footsteps and become a preacher. But at a very young age, Ira saw a play at the African Grove Theater and fell in love. In his teens, he was hired to be an apprentice by the theater, started by William Alexander Brown in 1821, six years before the abolition of slavery in New York State. It was by all means a successful theater, playing classics with black casts for black audiences, although at one point the theater had to build an extra level of seats for white attendees. There, young Ira played Romeo in Romeo and Juliet and took part in other productions like Richard III and Othello. James Hewlett, Ira's mentor, is the first black man on record to play Othello, ever. However, the racial unrest and violence in pre-abolition New York made their theatrical endeavors difficult to say the least. Neighbors complained. Police were constantly shutting them down due to boisterousness. Thugs were sent by white theaters to destroy sets and attack actors. And one source says that the theater was mysteriously burned to the ground in 1826. But whatever happened, there is no record of the African Grove Theater after 1823, two years after it began. Long before its demise, however, Ira saw the writing on the wall. He had been part of the violence against the theater. He had been severely beaten on more than one occasion and realized that America did not hold a future for him as an actor. So he set sail for England in 1824. Now, England did not abolish slavery either. They would not do so until 1833, but they had abolished the slave trade and an emancipation movement was slowly spreading through the country. In May, 1825, Ira Aldridge made his London debut playing Othello at the Royalty Theater, a low profile locale, and he was panned by the critics. One claimed that his delivery of the text was unreliable, but also said, quote, his death was certainly one of the best representations of bodily anguish we ever witnessed. Ira Aldridge was two months shy of his 18th birthday. His rise to prominence came in 1831 when Aldridge met the famous British father-son acting duo, Edmund and Charles Keane. The duo were performing Othello at London's Theatre Royal in Drury Lane, the oldest London theater still in use today, with father Edmund King playing Othello in blackface to his son Charles's Iago. In act three, scene three, at the words, villain, be sure, Edmund Keane suddenly fell to the ground and in a failing voice called out, oh God, I am dying, speak to them, Charles, and expired. Aldridge was called upon by Charles Keane and took up the title role in two days. Now, the Theatre Royal was much more in the London limelight and audiences and critics flocked to see this new and unusual occurrence, a black actor playing Othello, a black role. The critics had a field day. They objected to his youth, his inexperience, and more than anything else, they objected to his race. As Professor Tony Howard of the University of Warwick writes, quote, 
There were those who said, this is a very interesting and extraordinary young actor. And the fact that he's a black actor makes it more interesting and fascinating. But for many people, it was an insult because this is still a society where there's a great deal of slavery in the British empire. And in order to combat the idea of increasing abolition, performers like Ira had to be stopped. And so there was a great deal of violent aggression, not physical violence this time, but violence in the press. The press was relentless in their hate and cruelty. They likened Ira's performance to that of a performing animal. They claimed his entry on the stage was an affront to literary tradition, that he had no right to perform the blessed bard that belonged to them, but rather should, quote, be forced to work as a footman or a street sweeper. The production was closed two days later. Where a lesser actor might have packed it up after such scathing press, Ira Aldridge didn't even flinch. Seeing that London wasn't a likely path to success for him, Aldridge began to tour more provincial theaters and this turned out to be a huge success. He traveled to Ireland and performed there and where London's disdain for his performance and his race may have hurt him in England, in Ireland, it only increased their admiration for him. England's disdain and mistreatment of the Irish at that time made the Irish people feel like kindred spirits with Aldridge and his success was their success. Their love of him began to spread like wildfire. Ira Aldridge toured with the production of Othello and took the once blackface role and made it his own. He then performed the lead in Orunoko by Afra Ben to great acclaim. He then played Aaron the Moor, then he played Richard III, he played Iago, he played King Lear and Macbeth, he played Shylock in pale makeup and a wig. If you want an idea of how revolutionary this was, we do not see black actors on record playing historically white roles like this for another 150 years. As recently as 1970, where Joseph Papp's casting in New York Shakespeare in the Park gave actors like James Earl Jones the opportunity to play roles like King Lear. Ira Aldridge even became the first black theater manager, saving the Coventry Theater from financial ruin. He accomplished all this while one of the most popular shows in England contained a skit where a man in blackface portrayed an actor attempting to play Hamlet while audience members interrupted him with requests for the slave song, Possum Up a Gum Tree. He did all this while Thomas Rice, a white entertainer, toured England with his popular Jim Crow minstrel character. And then he did this. Ira Aldridge attended Thomas Rice's minstrel show. Ira Aldridge memorized the Jim Crow routines. Then Ira Aldridge added them to the finale of his own show, but delivered the lines and songs with pathos and ended with a plea for the abolition of slavery. It is recorded that after he left the stage, audience members would leave the theater and go directly to the county hall to petition for abolition. By the end of the 1840s, 
Word of his acting skill had spread across Europe and Aldridge answered that call. He toured Germany, France, Russia, Sweden, and is even credited with being the first person to bring Shakespeare to Serbia and Poland. He would tour with local theater companies and would perform Shakespeare in English, while the rest of the troupe would perform in German or Swedish or France, whatever their audiences spoke. Despite not being able to understand the lead actor, Aldridge's performances captivated audiences and he was widely acclaimed. Russian historian M.P. Pogodin wrote, quote, such is the power of his spirit that you surrender to him from the first minute. You understand what he says. You apprehend all that he feels. You listen, it seems, to every beat of his heart. And deep in the heart of every ecstatic spectator, a sacred conscience is heard. In my imagination, I saw the history of a whole people. His fans included Hans Christian Andersen and Friedrich Wilhelm IV, King of Prussia, who awarded Aldridge the Prussian gold medal for arts and sciences. He was given the title of Chevalier Baron of Saxony, the first black knight of the realm. But most of his admirers called him the African Rocius after the famed ancient Roman actor, Quintus Rocius Gallus. He returned to London in triumph. By then, the Civil War was over and Aldridge made plans for one last return in triumph to the land of his birth, a 100-day tour of the newly emancipated United States. But it would never come to be. Just weeks before the tour kickoff, Ira fell ill with a lung condition and passed away at age 60. He is buried in Wut, Poland, at the St. Joseph Cemetery. He's recently been the subject of two plays, Black Othello by Cecilia Seidenblatt and Red Velvet by Lolita Chakrabarti. And in 2017, the city of Coventry in England honored him with a blue plaque on the side of the theater where he made his mark. Ira Aldridge was a truly remarkable figure. And while he succeeded in overcoming the monstrous racism of his time and becoming an all around great Shakespearean actor, his legacy runs far deeper than that. He changed the face of Shakespeare forever. Ira Aldridge took roles that have for centuries been played by white men in blackface in a type of awful racial impersonation and demonstrated to audiences, not only that black actors could and should play these roles, but that the roles themselves had depth, complexity, pathos, authenticity, humanity, and were so much more than what the masses believed the race of the character indicated. These were not just stock ethnic villains. These were real characters. While into the 20th century, we did still see some white actors playing Othello, Laurence Olivier and Orson Welles, for example, that kind of casting today is seen as backwards and as Hugh Muir of the UK Guardian writes, absolutely ridiculous. Even greatest, not only did Ira Aldridge change societal notions about black actors playing black roles, his portrayals of King Lear, Macbeth, Richard III and Shylock laid the groundwork for actors of all types to play any Shakespearean role. He demonstrated that Shakespeare was not just what the white male powers that be dictated that he was, but rather that there were new exciting possibilities when you broke through those barriers and challenged societal preconceptions. <laughs> 
His indomitable spirit and driving ambition made his impact on black theater, abolition, civil rights, and the study and practice of Shakespeare as a whole long lasting. And it is an inspiration for us now and for future generations. It is because of the seed of change that he planted that we can finally rewrite Samuel Johnson to reflect the humanity we all now can see in Shakespeare. Shakespeare has no heroes. His scenes are occupied only by people who act and speak as the reader thinks they should themselves have spoken or acted on the same occasion. Thank you for coming to my Bard Talk. A huge thank you to Dahl for another thought-provoking Bard Talk. Coming up on Shakespeare, look out for episodes featuring insight into the history of the Merchant of Venice, whose character Shylock is featured in the one-man show, Shylock, that SVS is co-producing with Tabard Theatre Company in the month of June. For those craving a bit of drama in your podcasts, SVS will be releasing abridged versions of Shakespeare classics throughout the summer. Stay tuned for Titus Andronicus in June, The Comedy of Airs in July, and Richard III in August, featuring the voice talents of artists throughout the Bay Area. And now, because no episode is complete without one, I'll hand it back to our resident dramaturge, Dal Picado, for this episode's Bard Babble. As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, words, words, words. This episode's Bard Babble is pedant. The word pedant means teacher, and it appears that Shakespeare created this English version of the word from the French pedant, or its older mid-15th century Italian source, pedante. Both of these words were derived from the Greek paedagogos, which is an amalgamation of the Greek words for child and the verb to lead. This originally referred to a servant who escorted children to and from school but later meant a source of instruction or guidance, a teacher. You can first find Shakespeare's use of pedant in Taming of the Shrew, where Hortensio, disguised as a music teacher to woo Bianca, objects to Lucentio, disguised as a Latin teacher to also woo Bianca, taking up too much of her time. But, wrangling pedant, this is the patroness of heavenly harmony. Then give me leave to have prerogative. And when in music we have spent an hour, your lecture shall have leisure for as much. Shakespeare invented over 400 words. This has been one of them. From SVS to all of our wonderful listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of Shakespeare.